Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. God is active all over the world. And sometimes it's easy for us to get so caught up in the things that are happening right around us that we think that the only things that are really taking place in our world are what's happening immediately in front of us. But the truth is, is that we have a God who has a global desire to reach people with the gospel. And so God's activity is happening all over the world. And what I want us to center ourselves on today is the fact that God is at work everywhere and he's inviting us into that work. And so when we think about what God is doing, we would even say, and we see this taking place all over the world right now, that the places where God is most active, in fact, in growing his church and seeing disciple makers multiplying and seeing churches growing and multiplying is not happening in the United States. It's happening in countries like uh, in, in Asia. It's happening in Africa. Uh, it's happening in places that, uh, that we typically think of as being very dark places. And that's the reality, that there is a lot of darkness in those areas. But the gospel is moving and God is at work. And so he's inviting us into that. And the passage that I want us to look at is probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. You may not even have to read it, but it's John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It'll be on the screens for you, and I want you to see this. It says, For God so loved the world, the whole world, all of it, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And verse 17, I think is one of the most overlooked verses in all of the Bible, even though verse 16 is probably the most famous. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Notice how many times John says the world in that passage. Like it's over and over again, God so loved the world that he sent his son. And he didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. Like it's God's intention, it's God's desire that everybody on planet earth hear about him and know about him. God is motivated by his love, right? God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Like it's not out of any other means or any other desire except for love that God sends us out into the world, that he sent his son initially into the world. And so when we think about this, that God's love is global, it's not isolated to one nation or one location or one people group, it's a global love. He's going, I love everyone in the world and I want the whole world to know about me. And because God's love is global, he desires to infuse us with that same type of love. That he goes, I want you as my followers to have the same love for the whole world that I have. I don't want you just to love where you live enough to tell people the gospel. I don't want you just to love the people in your workplace enough that you would speak the truth of the gospel there. I want you to develop and be infused with a love for the whole world. That's what God's calling us into. It's what he's inviting us into. And so this morning, we're going to take a look back at some things that are part of God's plan in bringing the nations into relationship with himself. But before we look back, I want us to take this glimpse forward. And I want us to see some things that are going to be happening future, still even beyond what we're experiencing today. Uh, And here's why I want us to do that. If you have ever undertaken a project 
and you've thought to yourself, man, this could either go really well or it could be an absolute disaster. Anybody ever taken on anything that you were just like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It could be a horrible failure. If you knew at the onset, and some of you are like, we've been in that place before. I see your faces, right? Like if you knew at the onset, hey, you're going to work on this. It's going to take you time and effort and energy. And it doesn't matter how much you pour into it or what you do. When you get to the end, the end result is going to be abject failure. It is going to be horrible. Like it will not turn out the way you wanted it to. It's going to be a disaster and you're just going to end up just throwing it away or just tearing it out and hiring somebody to come in and do it for you. Like you wouldn't even start the process if you knew that was going to be the result. But if you had the opposite view, if you went, man, I've got this project that I want to do. It's going to be hard. It's going to be intensive. It's going to take time and effort and energy. It's going to take resources, financial resources to accomplish this. But I can be guaranteed at the end, it's going to be exactly what I want. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be incredible. Like everybody's going to want to come and see it and experience it and enjoy it. And I'm going to be like, this is incredible. I'm so glad I did this. Like you would jump into that in a heartbeat, no matter how much time, effort, energy, cost that was associated with it, you would do it because you knew the result was going to be incredible, right? And so when we look at the Bible, when we get to Revelation chapter seven, I think God gives us a picture of the future for us to know as Christians that the thing he's called us into is worth everything that it costs us to show his love to the world. So here's what Revelation 7 says in verses 9 and 10. John's writing, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All nations, all tribes, all languages, all people will be allowed and will be represented in heaven. Why? He says, because salvation belongs to our God. It's his and it's his to give away. It belongs to him and he wants to give it away. And he shows us this. And I feel like there's this picture of this future thing that's going to happen so that we as Christians will know it's worth everything that we can give in this life. It's worth every financial thing that we can give. It's worth all of our time. It's worth all of our energy. It's worth all of our effort to take the gospel out to the nations. And it's not going to result in failure. It's going to result in success. Now, does that mean that everyone will get saved? No, it doesn't. But it says he will accomplish his purposes that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will worship God for eternity before his throne. And so when we see that, it should light our hearts on fire to go, it's worth it for me to take the gospel out. Here in Kingsport, where we live, work, and play, around the world where we have to go to get there, God, send me out and let me be someone who carries the truth of the gospel with me everywhere that I go so that I can help other people find you. And so Jesus invites us into this. He doesn't really invite us in. He kind of commands us to do this. Like it's not something that we go, well, if you feel like it as a Christian, you should be part of taking the gospel out. He's like, this is what I'm telling you to do. In fact, the last thing Jesus gives to his disciples before he leaves earth, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Then Jesus came to them, his disciples, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Right? So, so Jesus left his disciples, those first disciples, and us included, anyone who would follow Jesus after this first century date, he left all of us with marching orders. Hey, go, go to the nations, go out into the world, go and take the gospel and teach people everything I've taught you and baptize people into my name. Let them know that there is hope for them. And so that's the command, like go. But Jesus's disciples did what we so often do at the very beginning. They said, hey, why don't we stay and make disciples? <laughs> like, let's just stay home and make disciples. It's the same thing, right? And oh, by the way, where we are in Jerusalem, the church is growing like crazy. I mean, thousands of people are following Jesus. On the day of Pentecost alone, 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. And then it says that every day after that, there was more and more and more people. And so the disciples are going, this is awesome. We don't even have to go anywhere for discipleship to be taking place. We can just stay in Jerusalem. Look how much the church is growing. Look how awesome this is. It's fantastic. But God was like, no, that wasn't what I commanded you to do. I didn't say stay and make disciples. I said go and make disciples. And we can be like that too, right? Like, God, I just want to stay right here where I'm comfortable, where things are good. And especially in a season when, when it was comfortable. And for the disciples to be like, hey, we can stay right here in Jerusalem and do this, and, and the church is growing, and everybody seems excited about this thing, and, and then all of a sudden, something happens that changes the whole game. In Acts chapter 7, one of the new deacons in the church, Stephen, preached boldly about God's wrath against sin and the salvation that can be found in Jesus. And when he preached that message in Acts 7, the religious leaders in the crowd stood up and they killed him. And then here's what we find in Acts chapter 8, right after Stephen is, is dead. It says, And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, last week, if you were here with us, we talked about the things that happen, four things that happen everywhere the church goes, right? And so as the church is beginning and if the church is planted in different places and as the church spreads around the world, there are four things that you can take to the bank are going to happen every single time that the church begins to be planted and grows. Here's the first thing, the church multiplies, like we're going to find that the church is going to multiply. It is a movement of God. His spirit is behind it. As people become believers, they're going to share their faith with others. Other people are going to accept and the church is going to multiply. The church in Jerusalem was growing. House churches were popping up everywhere. Relational discipleship was the driving force behind all the things that were taking place. And so we see that there is growth that's happening all around this area. But then they had a new problem. People's needs weren't being met well. And so here's the second thing that takes place. Leaders need to be equipped. Like we equip leaders. And so the early church had the apostles who were there teaching the people. I'm sure that they had elders that they were putting in these homes that were leading the homes. 
and the, the, the church groups that were popping up. And then they said, we need deacons to meet the needs of people. And so as needs were discovered, there were leaders that were equipped and leaders that were trained. Every time you see the church pop up in the world, in scripture and all over, even today, leadership has to be taking place, has to be given to people. And there has to be equipping of leaders. Then the third thing is this, that when we see opposition come, the church faces opposition and persecution. Right? Like, so we saw this in Acts, Acts chapter 8. The people were forced out of their homes. Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, who becomes one of the greatest missionaries that the world has ever known and wrote the majority of the New Testament. But before he did all of that, he was somebody who was set against the church. He was going to kill people and, and send them to prison. He wanted to destroy the church. He was zealous for his Jewish faith, but he didn't want anything to do with Christ. And so in the middle of that, there was persecution that comes but when the church faces persecution, the final piece of the puzzle is put in place. And here's what we find. The gospel goes out to the unreached. And so as persecution came into the church, what did it say happened? The believers were scattered all over the region, right? And what did verse four say? It said, those who have been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Right? So I'm not saying that we should pray for persecution. I don't think we find that in scripture that we should be like, God, please persecute us and bring opposition against us and let us just experience awful things. I'm not saying we should pray for persecution, but I'm saying that God uses opposition and persecution to spread his word. And it's in the middle of that and in the middle of opposition and persecution that we find the flames of the church grow. Like it's not a deterrent to the church, it's kindling for the church. And God knows how to take and use opposition and persecution for believers to live out genuine, authentic faith in Jesus and show the world around them that there's something different about knowing this God and being in relationship with him. And that as we live out our faith through the opposition and the persecution, that people go, man, I want to know what that person has. I want to know what that church has that I don't have. Because if I was being persecuted like that, I wouldn't be praising and worshiping. If I was being persecuted like that, I would be yelling and screaming and cussing at people and trying to fight them to get back. Right? Because that's not what we're supposed to be. When we face persecution, we're supposed to go around preaching the gospel. That there's a God who loves us, who's merciful and kind, who sent his son to endure persecution and opposition to introduce us to the Father and to bring us into a relationship with him. So here's what I am saying. We shouldn't necessarily pray for persecution, but if you're looking at notes this morning or write things down, here's one thing I would give you. We should be praying for God to shake us to our very core, that we should be saying, God, send us out, move us out of our comfort zones so that we're willing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that we're willing to take the gospel to our neighborhoods, that we're willing to take the gospel to our workplaces, that we're willing to take the gospel to our cities and states. But God, help us to be so shaken by your glory and your power and your gospel that we want to go and tell people all around the world that we're not satisfied with just being here, but we want the gospel of God to spread all over the earth. And so we find that take place with Peter. If you were to look in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and we're not going to read it this morning. I'm going to kind of recap the story to you. But God had to do this same thing with Peter. 
Peter is basically the lead disciple that Jesus has chosen. And when, when Jesus leaves the earth, Peter kind of takes this position of leadership for the church. He's the first one that speaks in the power of the gospel and, and shines the light on the gospel at Pentecost. And, and under Peter's leadership, the church is just growing and multiplying, expanding. But Peter's kind of one of these guys that feels like, man, this is a gospel for the Jews. <laughs> like this is what God's plan is for our people. And it's not necessarily for the whole world. And so one night, or actually one afternoon, Peter goes and he takes a nap up on the roof of this house that he's staying in. And while he's sleeping, God shows him a vision. And multiple times, this curtain comes out of heaven. And in this curtain, there's all these animals that are there. And from the Jewish perspective, they're all considered unclean animals, things that the Jewish people weren't allowed to eat due to their dietary restrictions and laws from the Old Testament. And so there's this voice from God that comes in the vision and says, Peter, get up and kill one of those animals and eat it. And multiple times, Peter goes, uh, no, like I'm not going to do that. I am, uh, I am religiously devout to the, the custom of the laws and, and that is outside of the law for me and I am not going to kill and eat one of those animals. And finally, this voice says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. Like if, if I deem it to be clean and worthy, then you can go for it. And then right after that, here's what takes place. Peter's thinking about this dream that he has when all of a sudden some guys knock on the door of the house where he's staying. And they say, we're looking for a guy named Peter. Our master had a vision telling him to come to us. And here's the rub. Their master that was calling for Peter was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. And so Peter initially is like, I don't want to go to this Gentile's house. In fact, it is unlawful for me to go to this Gentile's house. I'm not supposed to associate with Gentiles. We stay away from them. They are, guess what, unclean. And then Peter starts thinking about this vision that he had. Hold on just a second. I just had a vision saying not to call something unclean that God has called clean. So he agrees to go. He's like, I guess it can't hurt to go and just check out and see what's going to happen. And by the time you move into Acts chapter 11, Peter is with Cornelius and he's with his family and he goes and reluctantly, Peter shares the gospel with them, tells them about Jesus, tells them all the things that have been taking place in Jerusalem and in Israel. And the Bible says that Cornelius and his whole household believed the gospel. And when they did, the spirit of God fell on them in the same way that it fell on the disciples at Pentecost. And Peter's watching all this and going, this is crazy. This is mind-blowing stuff. Is it possible that the gospel of God is for the Gentiles the same as it's for the Jews? That God doesn't see them as unclean and unworthy of the gospel? And I'm going to have to change my whole philosophy of life and ministry? And that's what Peter gets to this point of going, I had it all wrong. I thought that the gospel was just for a certain people, but truly the gospel is for the world. And so for us, we start to identify and see these same things. With all of that in mind, I want us to look at why we stress the importance of world missions and why we talk about being on mission with God in our daily lives. And here's the next thing on your outline if you're taking notes. World missions is important because everyone matters to God. And because Jesus has commanded his church 
to go to the nations. Like, why is this so important? Why would we as a church spend an entire month talking about on Sundays and Wednesdays world missions and, and God's global love and his plan for the world? Why would we spend time doing this? Because this is exactly what God's heartbeat is. To carry out the work of redeeming the nations, God is looking for partners. And in the Old Testament, he chose a nation. He chose Israel. And he called them into partnership with himself. And he's like, I want you to be the ones that represent me to the world. And he even pulls them out of slavery in Egypt where they've been in bondage for 400 years. And in doing that, he brings them out into the wilderness and he gives them his own land. And he says, I want you guys to be different and set apart. I want your worship of me to be so different that the other nations around look at you and say, why in the world is what they do so different from everything else? Why is their God so different from all the other gods? God was looking for partners. And today in the New Testament era, God is looking for partners as well. And guess what? If you are a follower of Jesus, you've entered into a partnership with him. That he's saying, I want you to be in, in this relationship with me, that you're going to be the sent out ones. You're going to be my kingdom of priests. You're going to be my holy nation. That's going to be set apart from everyone else. So that the world looks at you, they're going to see something different. Unfortunately, though, for us, instead of having a heart for the people and for the world that we're supposed to be reaching, so many times we've entered into culture wars and we've isolated ourselves and separated ourselves from the world and we've said, we don't want anything to do with you. We're just going to stay over here in our little holy huddle and we're going to be different for sure, but not reaching. And I think God's calling us to a point where he says, I want you to be different and set apart. That's what holiness is about but I want you to do so in a way that extends my love and my grace to a world that needs it and isn't isolating people from the gospel, but it's taking the gospel to people. That's our calling. And so that was Jesus's intention for his disciples from the very beginning. If you look in Mark chapter three, verses 13 through 15, you're going to see as Jesus began his ministry and choosing his 12 disciples, there was something that he, he told them or that we find in his calling of them. Verse 13 says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those that he wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Right? And so here's three things that I want you to see in this calling. The call of Jesus to disciple making. Number one is just follow me. He says, I, I called those to me that I wanted to follow. Right? He calls them to himself. He appoints 12 that they might be with him. Like it's all about follow me, be with me, spend time with me, be in relationship with me. And then the second thing that we see is this, that he says, I want you to take the gospel out to the world. He appointed 12 that they would be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Like, I'm going to call you to follow me and be with me, but I don't want you just to stay right by my side all the time. I'm also going to send you out. You come and you learn from me and be with me and gain from me so that I can send you. And then he tells us this last thing. He says, I'm going to give you authority to drive out demons. And here's what I think we can take from that, that he's going to send us to the darkest, most broken places of the world to bring healing. That when God sends us, He's going to go, I'm not going to send you to the really easy, comfortable places. I'm going to send you to the broken places. You're going to have to go where people are demon-possessed. You're going to have to go where there's hurt and pain that's unimaginable. 
And in those dark, hurting places, you're going to bring light and hope and grace. So I'm sending you. Come follow me so I can send you out, and I'm going to send you to difficult spots. But that's okay, because we go back to what he told his disciples in Matthew 28, and don't forget, the whole time, I'm going to be with you, right? Like, I'm not going to abandon you to do this by yourself. I'm coming to and God gives us his spirit to empower us so that he can live inside of us. And then we take his gospel out to the world. Being on mission is not about what we do when we fly out to another country. Like, that's part of missions. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that at the end of our service this morning. That's not the biggest thing. Being on mission is about worshiping Jesus. Follow me. And then it's about preaching his truth. Some of you are like, I don't even like that word preaching. Like, if you tell me I'm supposed to go out of my workplace and preach, like, that doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> well, you got the wrong idea of preaching, right? It's really just living out your faith in a way that shines light on the truth and that speaks truth to people. That you're willing to enter into to hard conversations. That you're willing to have social conversations with people who disagree with you about their, their faith and your faith. But who will still say, I want to hear about this gospel that God has for me. And so we're called into that. And I want you to remember this as I close up this morning. It's all about God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's the motivating factor for us. Do we love people enough to share the gospel with them? Do we love people enough that we would have awkward conversations? Do we love people enough that we would go to difficult places? Do we love people enough that we would leave the comfort of our homes and our country even maybe to go somewhere else and speak the gospel and spread the gospel message? There's um, a guy that I really enjoy watching. Uh, he's part of a famous magician duo, Penn and Teller. Anybody know Penn Gillette? Uh, I like Penn and Teller, and they've got a great show on TV called Fool Us, right? And so I love it when magicians come on and they try to trick Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn Gillette is a world-renowned atheist. Uh, not just like an atheist that's going, I don't care about God. He is like a guy who goes, I'm an atheist, and I want you to be an atheist. And so here's what Penn Gillette actually said about Christianity. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this, the gospel, is more important than that. That's from an atheist who's going, hey, Christians, how much do you have to hate people to believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that your faith says... If you don't trust in Jesus as Savior, you're choosing to be separated from him for eternity. How much do you have to hate people not to tell them about that kind of love? That there's a gospel of love and grace 
that God has extended so that we can know him and follow him. This morning, as we close up our time together, I'm going to invite John Luffy to come on stage. And John is a guy, he and his wife, Bethany, who you're going to hear more from next week. Uh, They have three kids here in our church, a great family. Uh, John is a guy who has been on the mission field and who experienced a call in his life to go to these other parts of the world. Uh, In fact, that's where he and Bethany met, was on the mission field. Two Americans in different countries. That's how they had to get together. Um, but, uh, But in this process of the calling, that there was something that God said to John to be like, I want you to go and take the gospel around the world. And so John's going to share his story with us this morning about the calling that he's experienced. John, thanks so much for leading us this morning, man. I really appreciate that microphone right behind you over there. And, uh, and you guys um, are going to get to just hear some of John's calling and his story. And then next week, you're going to hear from Bethany about her story as well. And they're going to be available to you guys to talk with uh, after the services are over this week and next week. And, and maybe the question I want you to ponder as you hear from him is what might God be calling me to do? As a, as a believer in Christ moving forward. So, John, thanks for sharing with us. Yeah, thanks, Pastor Joel. Um, when this whole uh, global missions topic came up, and um, I said, we need to talk about what people should do if they feel called to the mission field. And Bethany and I jumped up and said, pick us, pick us. Um, because we, uh, it's kind of near and dear to our heart. Does anybody have a guess at, according to some sources, how many missionaries do not complete their first term? Somebody want to throw me a number? How many? 50? You're still low. By some sources, 80% of missionaries don't complete their term. 70% of those are due to preventable reasons. Um, And one of the things that Bethany and I observed within our own circle is a lot of that was fleshing out the call of God. And so we were fortunate the way that God spoke to us, led with us, surrounded us with authorities and things. And so what we've kind of realized is, and we're going to point you back to, point you back to Scripture for this, there's five facets of a mission calling that need to be worked through. Um, we all have a call to missions. Pastor Joel's kind of talked about that. So um, what do we do to find out about this practically? So... Um, this J term, we're going to have a lot of emotions. We're going to hear a lot of cool stories. We're going to hear a lot of things that should pull on our heartstrings. What do we do with that? Well, the first thing we, we got to look at is refining that call. Um, there's some cool stuff as far as Paul and Barnabas being set apart. Uh, there's specific words that we see direct assignments. Jonah got one. We'll talk about Jonah later. Uh, (laughs) There's pull to certain areas. And then there's there's prophetic words that come forth and visions, as we saw with Peter and Paul both experienced those. And then there's methods to kind of work through that. There's prayer, there's fastening, there's research. Short-term missions can be a great way to kind of help refine that call. Uh, And we've got some resources out on on a little table out there in the gathering area to help you work through that. Um, But as we start looking into it, the five facets, the first one is confirmation. What, what is there that has confirmed your call? Uh, one of those is the provision that's available. Um, I know that when I finally went to the mission field, I, went to, uh, I was doing an internship, and I went to the church secretary, and I said, I know I have an account here for my internship that I'm doing, um, and I know that some of that's going to be applied to my missions trip. How much is there? And she said, well, 
you have enough for your living expenses already in there. It was a more above and beyond what it should have been. Somebody or multiple people were sending money ahead of time. God was preparing provision for this. And that morning, the secretary had walked in and said, oh, and found an envelope with $1,000 in cash shoved underneath the door for my impending trip. The Lord provides when he calls. So that's a confirmation of the call as well when, when that provision comes, and we'll come back to that. The second one is authority. Jesus Christ was a man under authority. We see that very clearly delineated in the, in the centurion servant story. Um, at missionaries too, we have to go under some sort of authority that provides us what we're doing. And those authorities should bear witness to our calling. They should confirm that calling and, it, and our going under them should be in line with their authority. Um, then the third other aspect is provision. I know I mentioned provision as part of, as part of confirmation, but there's multiple levels of, of provision here. And this is one that's near and dear to my wife's heart. There's a provision of grace. Um, I'm a home person. I remember being so much at home that my entire family would go shopping and I would stay home. I like home. Um, when I moved away, from, in fact, I used to make a joke. Guys, don't ever do this. This is horrible advice. Uh, I used to joke that I'd found the right woman when she was willing to come home and live with me in my parents' house. Um, bad advice. Don't do that. Uh, nevertheless, I was that much of a homebody. My first short-term mission trip to Serbia, when I left Belgrade, I cried for three hours to London Heathrow. I've never felt so homesick in my life. It was a grace of God that my home went from the back hills of Tennessee to a city of two million people. Um, I still feel that tension even now that I have two homes. Um, there's a peace. We see that in Colossians 3.15, the peace of God rule and reign in your heart. You should have peace about the calling. Um, there's additional provision of your personality. Um, God has gifted you to reach certain people, to, to be able to talk to certain people, to do certain things, and we're gifted differently, and that's a whole part of the body. So do work within line of that mission or in the grace that God's given you. There's some, we'll talk more about that, and you can come talk to me at the table. Uh, and then, then the physical provision that comes in. Did God empower you to create wealth? Did God empower you to be a working missionary? We have the example of Paul as a tent maker. Do you think he was just sitting there making tents and then going and doing the gospel? He was heavily discipling the people that he was working with. We see those people, Priscilla being one of them, being a leader in the church later, is working in another country part of your mission calling to provide the provision to be there. Um, another one is, that's huge is the timing. There's a couple of aspects of timing that come into play. Are you mature? Titus, Timothy both discuss the need for if you're going to be a leader, which a missionary is, you're leading people into the gospel, you need to be mature. Um, and I, I've seen many people who are not properly mature sent out into them, oh, you've got the heart for missions. Let's send you to the mission field. They were not mature. The timing was all wrong. Guess where they are now? Not in the mission field. Um, so timing is critical. What happened with Abraham when he got a promise and he didn't like the timing? He tried to do it his own way. Are we still dealing with the mess of that thousands of years later? Yes, we are. Um, Moses, same way. We look at the prophetic 
lining up of the timelines that Israel was supposed to be in Egypt. It was delayed by 40 years. How many years was Moses on the backside of the desert? We got to do things in God's timing and God's way. So that's, that's important to work through. Um, and the final aspect is sacrifice. Luke 9, if anyone will follow me, he must take up his cross. This is, this is the hard part. I can give you numbers. Do you know what the stress level of critical life incidences are? They, they have a little scale. Over 200 is bad for you. Most missionaries in their first year hit 500 to 600. Um, there's a high cost. Luke 9, um, I forget the verses right off. People come up to, hey, Jesus, let me follow you. And he says, I don't know where I'm staying. Foxes have holes. I have nowhere to stay. Are you ready to have no home? The next person comes up and says, let me go bury my father. No, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. Do you not think that takes an emotional toll on you to miss funerals, to miss saying goodbye to people? And this is the cost that comes before us as we embrace this. However, I'm not going to leave you on a sad note. <laughs> what did Paul write? I count out all as lost to the riches of Christ Jesus. Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good. And we know that we have that eternal life coming, that perfection that's coming in Jesus Christ. And I can tell you, I've paid a lot. I wouldn't change it. I'd go back and pay more if I could. Um, I followed God. Guess what I brought back? Yeah, that, that, was, that was a pretty cool thing. Seek ye first the kingdom, and all these other things will be added unto you. Um, and I can give you story in, of story after, of the redemption of God and the things that I thought I was sacrificing for good, and the Lord said, ah, let me multiply that seed. Um, I lost track of time. What time I started? Am I good for, like, another minute? Okay. <laughs> so as far as more applicable to my calling, I knew at a very young age, I, I had an encounter with God and, and put it on my, my heart to uh, go to the nations. It was confirmed all through my growing up years through a variety of things. Then life happened. And I got hurt, a lot of traumatic experiences. And I went, uh, I don't really like this God thing going into ministry. But I knew Jonah, right? Jonah did a really dumb thing. He got on a ship. That's a very vulnerable position. And I went, ha, I'm going to stay put. If I just stay put in Kingsport, he can't mess with me. <laughs> uh, a few years later, God gently, kindly said, hey, son. I want you. I need you. Come back in. And he provided a place of healing and restoration and redemption. Ended up in an internship. That's actually where I met Bethany. Um, we became really good friends through the internship. And then she traipsed off to Macedonia. And I went to Serbia. Hey, great friend. Yeah, you're way down there. Um, and then uh, discovered through a variety of other sources that we were supposed to be working together. Um, we'll tell you that story later. Um, but all, all along the way, the provision was consistently there. As I mentioned, um, the, uh, the money underneath the door. Every step along the way of mine and Bethany's journey has been God's miraculous provision. Or he gave us an opportunity to work to create that provision. Um, and so we've seen that consistently time and time again. 
Um, and the grace, the grace to be where the grace is. Um, and even now, I've had a big argument with God. I'm like, God, we're in America. We're not going to the nations. I got issues with that, and that's what you said my calling was. Um, and he brought me to grace. And grace has given me an opportunity to multiply missionaries. Do you not think that's going to the nations too? And so we see that, that God's calling may not look like everything we look like. Bethany and I sold everything, and we moved to Serbia, and we didn't expect to come back. Went on a one-way ticket. Um, but here we are, and God has been consistently providing and bringing us back to that call to missions and ability to help expand even from here. So keep that in mind, that your calling may not look like your expectations, because he's bigger than you. He can do that. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate that, man. And I'm going to ask Ryan to come back up. We're going to sing one last time together. But following up on what he said, it may not look like your expectation. And so if you hear me today going, you're only on mission with Jesus if you get on an airplane and fly somewhere else, uh, then you're hearing wrong. And so I want to just say this really quickly. What does it look like if you're somebody who goes, I I just can't do that. I can't go somewhere else. I'm kind of here. This is where it is. You can still pray. You can still be a person who supports missionaries all over the world through prayer. You can give. You can be that person who slides money under a door that supports the missionaries like John and goes, I'm going to be able to fund you going. I can't be there where you are, but I can support you financially to be there and doing the work that God's called you to do. So we can be those kinds of people. And then occasionally, if the opportunity comes up, then you go. We're all supposed to be on mission right here where we live. But if God opens the door for you to go, be ready to say yes. And that might include a simple step of just going ahead and getting a passport and saying, God, my yes is on the table. I can now travel anywhere in the world. There's nothing holding me back. So if you call, I'm ready to go in a moment. Be ready for what God asks you to do. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.